potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another fascinating guest uh, who is involved in creating a better tomorrow, not just for us, but uh, for all our companion animal friends out there as well. Uh, we have the honor today of uh, being joined by Dr. Nicole Earhart, who is the director of the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University, where she leads an interdisciplinary research effort uh, to identify basic as well as translational mechanisms uh, that ultimately help promote healthy aging. Uh, Dr. Earhart holds the Ross M. Wilkins MD Limb Preservation Foundation Unity University Chair in Musculoskeletal Oncology and Biology. Uh, she's board certified veterinary surgeon, Professor of Surgical Oncology in the Department of Clinical Sciences in the College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences, and a research faculty member at Colorado State University's Flint Animal Cancer Center. Uh, in Dr. Earhart's research lab, uh, the Laboratory of Comparative uh, Musculoskeletal Oncology and Traumatology, uh, she conducts research in a variety of areas, including translational aging, limb preservation, tissue engineering, and sarcoma research, as well as bone and muscle regenerative medicine to ultimately benefit human and canine patients. Uh, Dr. Earhart also holds joint faculty positions in the School of Biomedical Engineering, uh, the Cell and Molecular Biology Program, the Gates Regenerative Medicine Center at Col University of Colorado, and the University of Colorado Cancer Center. And uh, in addition to her research, she's held leadership positions in national uh, and international organizations, including the American College of Veterinary Surgeons, Veterinary Society for Surgical Oncology as president, Veterinary Orthopedic Society as president and chair of the uh, uh, World Veterinary Orthopedic Congress Committee. Uh, we're honored to have with us today. A lot to talk about. Uh, Dr. Nicole Earhart, thank you uh, so much for taking the time to go on the show. Thank you, Ira. It's an honor to be here. It's great to have you, Nicole. I, I um, would love to start off, as we typically do, by uh, handing you the floor for a little bit, just to uh, to talk a little bit more about you and your background. Uh, tell us for comments, what got you into uh, veterinary medicine at the beginning uh, that started this amazing journey of yours? Sure. Um, yeah, as far as I can remember back, I wanted to be a veterinarian since I was a child. Um, and as I progressed through my primary education and then into my undergraduate career, um, I really was interested in the um, aspects of surgery itself. And so in vet school, that is pretty much what I thought I would do and actually went on to get a surgical residency. And during that surgical residency, I, I was pretty sure I would be an orthopedic surgeon and go into private practice and kind of do a lot of uh, surgery. And that was the extent of my, you know, career aspirations at the time. And uh, and a, a really interesting thing happened that completely impacted my research trajectory because I was asked to volunteer 
during my surgery residency, I was asked to be a volunteer at a children's cancer camp. And uh, when I went there, I met a little girl named Jenny and she was nine years old and she had, she was on chemo, so she had no hair. But what struck me about her is she was an osteosarcoma survivor and she had just had an amputation. And so um, as a veterinarian and especially a veterinary surgeon, osteosarcoma was a disease that was unfortunately near and dear to my heart. It impacts a lot of animals, um, especially dogs. And um, we were, you know, doing a lot of work in limb salvage. So where we spare the leg or, or actually reconstruct uh, the limb so that an animal doesn't have to have an amputation. And here is this little girl standing in front of me with, with an amputation. And it occurred to me that there's gotta be some connection here. And, and of course, as we now know, osteosarcoma is essentially identical in humans and dogs, um, biologically, molecularly, macros uh, microscopically, um, and response to similar types of treatments. And that was kind of when the, the light bulb went off that translation between uh, human diseases that also occur in, in animals and veterinary medicine and how much of an impact we could have um, and honestly, as a surgeon, I was thinking, well, gosh, we've got to have better solutions so kids don't have to have amputations. And maybe that uh, avenue to find those solutions might be through our companion dogs, wherein we could find, you know, discoveries that might help them live better, longer lives with all of their limbs and then be able to translate that to people. And so that was really what ignited the passion for translational research early in my career. And that's kind of what launched me into sort of the regenerative medicine limb preservation kind of world. Um, from there, um, I spent a lot of years doing a lot of stem cell work and, you know, bone substitute work and tissue engineering. And then in 2018, I did sabbatical and learned a little bit more about muscle. I was looking into muscle uh, stem cells to try to regenerate muscle tissue in patients that had large defects of muscle, whether that was from cancer or trauma or infection. And really, again, one of those uh, moments where the light bulb went off that stem cells and our regenerative capacity to, you know, create new bone or new muscle in defects that were really large is very limited. We're not salamanders. We can't regrow a limb. As a higher mammal, we have a limited regenerative capacity. But the other thing that occurred to me at the time is that's sort of what happens as we age as well, that our regenerative capacity begins to get less and less robust as we age and our stem cells get depleted and they also get exhausted and they get senescent. And that was when I realized we know expanding the scope of what I was working on in tissue regeneration to maybe thinking about it more broadly from an aging perspective was a really exciting field. And it coincided with a time when, you know, the biology of aging and understanding the fundamentals, fundamental drivers of aging was really coming into the mainstream of science. And so that was the tipping point once again for me. Um, and that's why I lead this translational research center in aging now. Awesome. Awesome. And yeah, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. You, you started publishing um, back in the, in the sort of the mid 1990s on uh, some of your work in limb preservation and osteosarcoma. You, you make this you know, fascinating uh, dog human sort of comparative biology connection. And then yeah, I also found it interesting and then we'll, you know, we'll get into the regenerative medicine in a bit, but one other thing that I neglected to mention in the intro is that you're also part of this um, uh, COHA, this clinical and translational science uh, One Health Alliance, and, you know, One Health uh, has been a very um, interesting topic for our show, primarily on the uh, the infectious disease side of things. But as you, this organization points out that um, One Health, uh, when we look at sort of the connection, 
between animal and human, of course, the environment, what have you, uh, it's more than infectious diseases. Uh, animals get cancer, animals get cardiovascular disease, diabetes, arthritis, and so forth. Talk a little bit more, if you would, about this theme of One Health and ultimately uh, the connection or sort of the connection to, again, comparative biology that uh, we're pretty similar <laughs> when it gets to these larger animal species. Yeah, and, and that's really where, um, you know, we talk about translation as kind of being the, the bench to bedside, you know, journey that things take from discovery to making a widespread global impact. But along that journey, there are a lot of different areas that we have, I think, traditionally neglected to pay attention to, which is that in addition to our own health, which is primarily what most of the major funding for health changes are in the world, you know, there are these other creatures that share the planet with us. And um, they are also subject to the environmental, you know, exposures and other things that we are, um, whether that be agricultural animals or in the case of my work, you know, companion animals that live in our homes that are experiencing not only our environmental exposures, but also even a lot of our lifestyle choices. So whether we're sedentary or active, whether we're smokers and they're inhaling our secondhand smoke, all of those things. And that there's this vast amount of knowledge that we can um, begin to tap into by paying attention to the health of those animals and the trajectory, even to the point where many of the animal species that we share our homes with really can act as sentinels for our own health and in our aging trajectory pathways to understand what's going to happen to us as we age. But, you know, bringing that also two-way street backwards, which is we care about these creatures, right? Especially our companion animals. Um, and we want them to have healthy, you know, very vigorous lives like we do. And so the idea that this is a very two-way street is a really um, important thing. And in fact, in the work that we've done um, in the cancer field, a lot of our um, clinical trials that we do in our patients, our canine and feline patients that have naturally occurring cancer, um, owners can elect to um, enter a clinical trial where they're using a new therapeutic um, to treat that cancer. Um, all the same ethical tripwires and you know, boundaries exist in our human clinical trials as do in the, in the uh, animal clinical trials. And the concept for many pet owners that not only are they helping their own pet and other pets that may in the future have cancer, like their pet, they're contributing to human um, cancer research or regenerative medicine research is a huge win for them. And for us, I mean, that's been a successful story that people are really engaged in um, this concept that there is one medicine. This is all sort of the same thing, just repackaged, if you will, in different um, ways for dogs versus humans. Um, and, you know, there are all different aspects of this where we could kind of, you know, double quick click, like the regulatory processes and how our companion animals might be partially able to help us accelerate that and de-risk some of these, you know, kind of higher risk type of drugs that we think might have very big impacts, but just are slow to come through the pipeline. So that's a rather long answer to your question. <laughs> no, 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 it's awesome. And it, it feeds right into where I was going next because, uh, you know, once again, thinking back to your work on, uh, as you were talking about limb preservation, osteosarcoma at the beginning, um, okay, here's something where, you know, you have to do the surgery, you have to deal with the cancer, but then you also have to deal with the, uh, the regenerative medicine side of things. And one of, another really interesting thing, again, as I was going through your, 
your portfolio, uh, you have been sort of at the forefront of using not just uh, experimenting or exploring uh, some of these novel areas uh, you've published on things like extracellular vesicle-based therapeutics, but also um, combinations, uh, synergistic combinations. You know, you published on, you know, combining uh, mesenchymal stem cells and PRP. Uh, interesting work that you've done on um, uh, FGH2, transforming growth factor beta-1, adipose stem cells. And, and I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm extremely fond and interested in, in this principle of combinations because it's something that we we gloss over a little bit too, too often. Obviously, we know about combinations in HIV, in, in multi-drug uh, cancer therapies, but it's one of those things we still have sort of a, a single magic bullet uh, a, a perspective a lot in, in sort of the pharma industry. Talk a little bit about uh, some of these combination approaches that you've taken uh, and, and some of the strategies that you used in, in the, uh, not just the, uh, the oncology space, but some of the other uh, companion animal work that you've been up to. Right. And I think, I think we all recognize that there are limits to any one kind of approach and the complexities of, for example, tissue regeneration or even, you know, blocking drivers of aging and um, processes in the, at the cellular level are much more complex than we really know. And as our understanding of cellular biology and pathways and what impacts expands, we start to realize that the needle in the haystack really doesn't exist, right? And what we need to do is think about, well, what are the tools that we do have that we know at least fundamentally uh, work at the levels that we think are important, for example, cellular regeneration or aging, et cetera. Um, and so I think that's really the thought is that, you know, we can not only discover sort of how things impact one another in combination, um, in some of these animal models, whether they be laboratory animal models or in naturally occurring disease states that really in a sick animal, for example, you know, some of these therapeutics that work really well in mice or even in, you know, larger animal models that, you know, animals will tolerate, maybe they're not going to tolerate if they're ill with the dis very disease that we're trying to treat. And that's what oftentimes stops things in that regulatory process is these toxicity issues that nobody saw coming. So I think that's a knife that cuts both ways, right? We need combinatorial approaches to a complex problem, and it makes sense that we would do that. Um, another piece that I wanted to touch on that I think is important too is that, you know, one setting doesn't fit all. And our lab has been really interested in the concept of regenerative medicine in the setting of cancer and how the safety issues surrounding that. Because as you know, I've been working on bone regeneration as an example, yep. and here we are having a patient that has a bone tumor, which has many of the same cell surface receptors that nascent bone cells or progenitor bone cells will have. So if we're asking bone to regenerate in a patient who previously had osteosarcoma and may have you know, microscopic disease circulating somewhere else in their body or even locally in the original site, could we potentially do something really bad? Could we add fuel to the fire of the cancer in an attempt to do something good, which is to regenerate bone and save a limb? And so we've done a lot of work with how, what are the bounds in which you can use some of these regenerative approaches, whether they be single or, or combinations in the setting of cancer safely and also effectively because chemotherapy, for example, is targeting rapidly dividing cells. And now if we're asking tissue to regenerate, how does that influence, you know, healing tissues? So in both ways, you know, the, the combination of disease and setting and drug or therapeutic or approach, they all have to be thought of um, at the same time and together. And one of the things that's really wonderful about this transdisciplinary approach is that by bringing in um, the lens of expertise from different domains of research, we really can find, you know, kind of the 
landmines that are a little bit hidden to us that are very narrowly like focused in these certain areas and on mechanistic approaches and things, which is all necessary. But to make it to the next step, you really need that, you know, transdisciplinary perspective that converges the knowledge of all these disciplines to really see the bigger picture. And I think that's really what I'm passionate about is bringing those types of teams together. So you're you know, your your comment about it being um, important for us to think about this on a more, instead of a single approach basis in a more complex way, whether that be uh, additional um, combinations of drugs or the setting, you know, the patient, the, you know, the other aspects and the X factors that go into whether something's going to work in a patient. That is a very, very big piece of the puzzle that I think many scientists and maybe even many clinicians have kind of ignored up until now. And so I think it's a, a part of what we need to be focusing on as scientists in the future. Yeah, I, and I also neglected to mention this uh, this article that you wrote called Synergy in Action, where you sort of go into the different pieces of, uh, and not just the medicines, but the different disciplines involved. So yeah, it's 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 fascinating and spot on. I, I really appreciate your perspective and all that. Um, getting to sort of the the uh, sort of the combination con condition of them all aging. Um, uh, you gave this uh, fascinating talk at the the Healthy Aging Speaker Series. Uh, overall, how mess but. Man's best friend hold the key to changing aging, and your presentation uh, was entitled "Grand uh, Great Danes and Granddads: Surprising News About Changing How We Age." And, and here you introduce. Um, we talked a little bit about the hallmarks of aging on the show, but you introduce this extremely important uh, period of known as the translational gap, where uh, great, we have mice and nematodes and yeast and all sorts of other great things, just like we have in a lot of different fields. Uh, but we need something there for the proper translation because a lot of that stuff usually doesn't get it of course uh here we come here come uh, man's best friend the dogs talk a little bit about uh, the translational gap and, and the important role you see dogs playing here for aging right well you you described it really well that the discovery um especially in the aging field is piling up on one side of this great divide and yet very few things have made it into a meaningful health uh, impact in a human population and there are a lot of reasons for that one of which is kind of the traditional paradigm of, you know, starting in very simple animals and then making your way up to a more complex animal like a mouse, um, and then expecting that to behave similarly in people. And mice are an incredible tool. Of, and, you know, of course, I do a lot of mouse uh, research as well. But to get across the bridge, we need something that's going to be able to de-risk that or accelerate that process such that we can mimic what might happen in a human population in a way that would allow us to understand, is this going to be successful in the setting of disease, older age, and the genetic and epigenetic heterogeneity that occurs in a normal human population as a result of our you know, actual genetic makeup, but also our environmental exposures and lifestyle choices and social economic status, et cetera. And so what what animal model could we potentially look to for that? And the dog certainly comes up as, uh, you know, the, the naturally occurring aging model that lives right alongside of us in our homes, exposed to our environments and foods and water, et cetera. But in addition to that, the dog has one very unique, and it's pretty much unique in the entire animal kingdom, really, um, about it that makes it an extremely powerful tool for translational aging research. And that is the diversity of lifespan based on body size. Mm -hmm. So the reason that lecture is, is titled Great Danes and Granddads is because we all know, as it, most people know, that Great Danes only have a very short life. They live mm -hmm. to seven or eight years, whereas small breed dogs live 
very commonly to 15, sometimes 16, sometimes even 20 years. And so there's something about this body size diversity that really changes the aging trajectory. Um, and we know that on a cellular level, if you took a nine-year-old Great Dane and a nine-year-old, say, Jack Russell Terrier, um, and you were to compare the drivers of aging within their cells, they're exactly the same chronologic age, but inside their cells, the Great Dane has a lot more accumulated drivers of aging, and on a cellular or biologic basis, that dog is older, much older. And so that's a, a, an interesting combination because we have the similar species, right? It's not like we're going across species. And we actually know when that Great Dane begins to accelerate its aging pathway relative to the small breeds. And interestingly, it happens at skeletal maturity. It happens mm -hmm. when they become mature, that all of a sudden the Great Dane accelerates in rapid motion relative to a small breed dog. The thing is, we can't know that in a human population. We know that by the age of 85, 90, people tend to fall into two pretty divergent phenotypes, if you will. You know, uh, you're either really independent and out in the golf course five days a week, or you're maybe needing some assistance and on a lot of medications, maybe in a memory care unit or something. And there's not a lot of people in between. All we know is that between birth and the year 85-ish, they somewhere along that line, they began to diverge. If we are looking at longevity therapeutics that will change that role, will change the person on a less healthy aging pathway and try to divert them to a more uh, healthy aging pathway, we need to know when they diverge because that would be an opportunity to test this, these therapeutics that are now on this side of the divide, right? Um, that we know work in reversing aging changes and slowing aging, uh, the onset of aging diseases. We need to know, do we need to do that when they begin to diverge? You know, or is age 70 appropriate time? Will we have a big effect at age 80 if we, as big of an effect if we started at, as a, at age 50? But we can't really do that in, in people because we don't know where they're going to end up. But we know where they're going to end up in dogs. We know that at age, you know, nine, that Great Dane is not going to be in great health. They're going to have, is going to have a, a phenotypic, that, a phenotype that's much older, is going to have more drivers of aging. And so if we can look at those animals in comparison, and actually treat them at known time points along that divergent pathway, suddenly we have that answer, which we wouldn't have been able to find any other way. I mean, there's no laboratory animal that can mimic that that same way. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's also important about that translational gap is that if we're talking about longevity therapeutics, we know that that's a hard road to, to you know, go down because we don't recognize age as a disease. So if you're trying to get regulatory approval for a longevity therapeutic in a human population, you really can't do it for lifespan. You'd have to do it for something, that, a disease, a recognized disease, Alzheimer's disease, macular degeneration, whatever. But that is not a limitation in dogs. We can do that in dogs. And if it works in a, in a population with naturally occurring disease, the same um, environmental drivers and exposures, the same lifestyle choices in many cases, and the epigenetic and genetic um, heterogeneity that mimics human populations, the likelihood that that is going to work in a human population is so much greater than if we were trying to go from man, uh, mouse to man. And unfortunately, you know, I think a lot of the, you know, scientists that are on study sections are really entrenched in that old kind of paradigm and we need to shift the paradigm. And that's really where the bridge across the divide, um, the dog becomes a very powerful model for that. And when you, um, to dive down into the, you know, that hallmarks of aging chart. 
Um, what are what are some of the things that um, maybe there maybe this this is not the question is phrased the right way, but are there certain things in the hallmarks of aging uh, that as it, when it comes to these companion dogs that pop up sooner? That I'm a, we're a bird family, so I, I don't know much about dogs, but. Um, and obviously, if you have uh, projects that you're involved in that you can't talk about, that's fine. But what are some of the, whether it's inflammation or stem cell exhaustion or any of those other components, what are some of the things that you do see in uh, dogs uh, manifesting earlier on in the in that cycle of, uh, of life? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's been pretty well established um, that dogs experience stem cell exhaustion and stem cell depletion as they age. We see sarcopenia in dogs, um, frailty even in dogs, which is not as clinically, like it's not as robustly clinically measured as it is in older older humans, mm -hmm. but it's some it's recognized in, in veterinary medicine. There's even a, a good paper that came out recently about frailty indices in dogs and mortality, like being a predictor of mortality as it is in people. Um, so that type of sarcopenia, loss of strength, et cetera, that's a big one. And, and stem cells and muscle are an area of research of mine that I that are a fond um, area that I like to talk about, but I mean, everywhere. Um, and also senescence, cellular senescence. So we see that in the brains of dogs with cognitive decline. We know that dogs get canine cognitive decline that mimics Alzheimer's both structurally and biologically. Um, and so we see senescence, for example, in the brains of those dogs, mm -hmm. um, as well as, you know, inflammation, low-grade inflammation. Um, and uh, so those are some ones that we're very familiar with and telomere shortening, sure. um, and which is a marker. Um, the other thing is nutrient dysregulation or nutrient sensing dysregulation, um, insulin-like growth factor aberrations, et cetera, that are part of some of the targets that people are working on now to, um, to sort of reverse that, that process. Um, one of the things that we're working on is um, biomarkers. And okay. so um, we're involved right now with developing a paired human dog biobank where we are sampling every year, um, both the canine companion and the human living in the same home um, to look for aging biomarkers um, and to see if we see aging biomarkers accelerate or different aspects of what whatever we are to discover in the future, you know, as, as a biomarker of disease A, B, or C, or just aging, healthy aging versus less healthy aging. Do we see that in the companion animals living in the same household? And those that those people are being sampled this at this on the same day, at the same place. Um, and so these are now a biobank that can be a very rich resource for both um, scientists and industry partners that are interested in developing both biomarker discovery and therapeutics for various diseases of aging, as well as other things that might occur um, during the animal's life. So the concept that we could, um, you know, kind of look to the dog as our sentinel for, you know, disease uh, in our own individual health is another really interesting area um, that we're working on. Um, I don't think I think I strayed from your original question, which is what? No, 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 that's, <laughs> no, no. I, I think that that's that, that's fine. I, if you continue along those lines, because I know one of the things that's mentioned in the um, uh, in, in the One Health materials is sort of the human animal interaction component and uh, the uh, human animal bond uh, as part of you know well health in both directions. Can you say a few words about that as well? Right. Well, we we know that in general, um, pet ownership is uh, is 
something that's good for longevity and good for healthy aging. A lot of that may have to do with emotional and social aspects. Um, we know that part of what is involved in healthy aging, even cognitive aging, is to have community and to be active in many of those things. And pets allow that. They give us those opportunities. So we have to walk our dogs. We have to um, you know, go to the veterinarian. Um, we're often more concerned about our animal's health and do more a better job at being um, good stewards of our animal health, our animal's health, than we are of our own. And so just um, the idea that by being caring for another being, whether that is a four-legged person or four-legged or a two-legged person, um, that we are actually um, benefiting from that, that relationship. Um, so we know that pet ownership in itself is a, is a healthy aging promoter. Um, I imagine that there may be times where you know, having a very well misbehaved dog or having terrible allergies or other things that could be kind of negative aspects of our, on, you know, our determinants of health outcomes are possible, but certainly on the whole, we know that that's the case. Um, and so our goal really is to think about, yes, um, we are looking at, we're, I'm involved with another project called the Colorado Longitudinal Study, uh -huh. and their um, work is sampling a million Coloradoans over a 10-year period. Um, that's their goal. Um, and working with them to look at social determinants of health outcomes mm -hmm. and pet ownership as part of their, you know, study, but also piggybacking the, the paired human canine biobank effort with that effort so that we can actually capture some of these things that over time in prospective, in a prospective manner that we probably wouldn't be able to capture in any other way, understanding, you know, the health aspects of pet ownership, whether that's as a sentinel for our own health or as a determinant of our own, you know, uh, you know, social and mental health as we age. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I wanted to ask about in terms, because you mentioned the, um, aside from uh, the, the normal care uh, in, in your facility, you know, you, there are also uh, the opportunities for clinical studies. And I wanted to, um, to ask you a bit about this. And, you know, I, I had um, a friend of mine uh, who I had on the show in the past, it was uh, Ellen de Rabender, who, uh, you know, she came out of animal health, but she was also in, in human health. And uh, back in the day, I used to talk to her and she used to say, you know, I, I hate when people could come to me and, and think that animal health was easy or, <laughs> or easier than the human side, because A, it's not, and B, you know, you're bringing a patient, in this case, my, my Great Dane or Chihuahua, whatever it may be, that is beloved um, to the family, maybe maybe more so than family members. But there is extreme care that needs to go in, not just to that animal, but in the case of a clinical trial, many factors come into play. Talk a little bit about uh, the clinical trial component of this when it comes to companion animals, please. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and so the clinical trials that uh, we get involved with um, at CSU, um, it was really started in the Cancer Center, and they really developed a very, very good infrastructure for clinical trials management, including GCP-like clinical trials, whether that be for an animal therapeutic or treatment or ultimately for human um, use, um, and sometimes in parallel, like they might have a, a second-to-lead molecule that they're interested in for a veterinary market, et cetera. But the, the way in which it's set up is that owners are, um, you know, we, they come in to be uh, treated for whatever the condition is in the case of cancer or some age-related condition. And they're given all of the options that they can choose from in terms of treating that. And that's generally everything from something that's just very palliative in the sense that just trying to make the animal more comfortable, but accepting progression of that disease all the way to trying to stop or get rid of the disease completely 
or at least give a very, very long remission in the case of cancer. Um, and that's our standard of care. It's the kind of menu of options that people can choose from in veterinary medicine. Um, and then they're also offered, if they're an animal that would be eligible for a particular clinical trial, they are offered clinical trials. And so that's typically when we come in and chat with them and say, here's kind of what we're looking at. Um, and if you're interested, you could volunteer your pet. Here are, you know, kind of the risks and the benefits to your pet. You always get standard of care plus, you never have to deny standard of care. It's part of our ethical, you know, policy is to not deny anybody's standard of care. So if you are participating in clinical trial, it's standard of care plus. Um, and, um, and then we expect, you know, we're going to need to see this pet this many times, et cetera, back to get our sampling and just see what's going on with disease progression. And at the end of that pet's life, we ask that you allow us to do a autopsy to understand what's happened in that animal's um, progression of disease. And certainly if there are any side effects from the treatment that we are now using as an experimental treatment, we will commit to treating those side effects to the best that we can. So, you know, if there's something, for example, a chemotherapy that causes a very low blood count, white blood count, we're going to put them in our ICU and they're going to get care just the same as any pet that came in. Um, that had a low white blood cell count, and we will take care of those costs. Um, in addition to that, oftentimes there's some incentive to the client, and generally the incentive is to help pay for the care. So as you probably are aware, you know, these a lot of uh, treatments, both for uh, age-related diseases and cancer, which is an age-related disease, yep. are very expensive, and third-party payment is not standard in, in veterinary medicine. And so uh, you know, spending ten to sometimes twenty thousand dollars on a pet's care is not that uncommon when we get into some of these advanced, you know, medical situations, and people want to seek that advanced care. And so, sometimes participating in a clinical trial offsets the costs of that, so that the people can proceed and maybe, you know, and actually also contribute. And as I mentioned, uh, I'm amazed at the number of pet owners that are really, really inspired by the fact that they are contributing. Um, that, you know, their pet is the one that's contributing to other, not only other pets' health, but also human health. And that is something that people can feel good about and people get behind. And, 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 and continuing along that for a moment, um, because as I mentioned, uh, per your portfolio, you, you've been touching on some of the cutting edge stuff in terms of the stem cells, in terms of the extracellular vesicles. Uh, what else is, is hot in terms of uh, whether it's CAR-T or gene therapy or X, Y, and Z that's coming down the pike that you're personally excited about, not just from the uh, companion animal angle, but also in terms of the comparative biology. Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of my um, excitement is coming now from sort of the uh, the, under, the better understanding of, uh, of stem cells and their um, effects, and then what we can do that really won't involve the cells themselves. Um, and I think what we're, we have an opportunity right now in these extracellular based, based therapeutics, we talked about that a little bit, mm -hmm. to be really good stewards of this new kind of discovery and moving it through and uh, translation, um, both for the benefit of pets as well as for the benefit of people. Um, I think that's a very exciting area. I think the whole area of synotherapeutics is extremely exciting. And I, I feel like that's really at the tip, that is really at the tipping point of what I think is probably going to end up being something that mean, makes a meaningful health impact in both animals and people in the nearest future. Um, and then on the cancer side, yes, CAR-T is huge. Um, I think that's a, a huge area. Um, I do think that the uh, induced pluripotential stem cell field and using that not only for 
um, types of uh, treatment of different um, diseases, but also um, from the standpoint of toxicity studies and other things to understand better how things work in a disease state. Because again, I feel like a lot of these, you know, efficacy trials, or sorry, um, toxicity in, um, in, in early preclinical data work in um, animals that don't necessarily have the disease and they're not sick. So really understanding what that's going to look like in a population of people or, you know, pets that do have a disease is an important piece that um, I'm excited about in terms of that technology being a, a game changer for us in the field. Cool. Um, Nicole, be, before the show, you and I were, were chatting and I was um, mentioning that you know, when I went once again into PubMed, I found your, your very first publication ever was uh, in, in ferrets and uh, pancreatic uh, cancer in ferrets. Uh, and it got me thinking about um, other uh, species that may fit that translational uh, gap model. Um, any other, you know, we, we talked, you know, we talked about things like the naked mole rat on the show. We've talked about brown squirrels and hibernation and stuff like that. Uh, any other interesting stories about uh, animals we might not think of that uh, that fill that role uh, that you may see come through in the in the practice? Right. Well, I will tell you that the most common question I get when I talk about the Great Danes and Granddads um, stuff is, "What about the cat? What about you know cats? Are they are they good models as well?" And yes, they are. They don't have the 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 um, benefit of having a a different um, lifespan based on body size like the mm -hmm. dog, but they are again live in our homes. So do our pet birds, by the way, and they are very sensitive environmental sentinels, as you know, to yeah. the old canary in the coal mine days um, that was that was what was used and so birds are extremely sensitive um, creatures to environmental drivers of health um, and translation um, the um, other animals that come to mind are um, you know creatures that have you know this kind of the the concept of pedo's paradox right you've probably heard sure. of that before yep. you know the you know this that have many many copies of cancer suppression cancer suppressor genes often go hand in hand with uh, a lower incidence of cancer in older age. And I think it's very interesting to me when you look at the hallmarks of aging, that little wheel that we're familiar with, yep. and the hallmarks of cancer, and you superimpose those two things, you find seven common areas between those hallmarks um, that are between cancer and aging. And we know age, age is the biggest risk factor for cancer, so that's not terribly surprising. But what's really kind of, uh, I think, profound to me is that you know, by it's that whole geroscience theory that by thinking about um, the the drivers of aging as sort of the key, you know, common thread between all the the diseases of advanced age, that we have an opportunity to make a bigger impact. So, so going to those kinds of animals that we know have longevity aspects to them, um, despite their very large size and despite their long lifespan, natural lifespan, I think are going to be very important for our you know our continued understanding of the whole picture. Outstanding, Nicole. One last thing while I have you, I um, I noticed in in recent <laughs> last year or so, you you've published uh, a few papers um, on on COVID. Uh, obviously, you know, while while not a disease of aging per se, disproportionately affecting uh, the elderly population. Can you just say a few words about um, the the time you spent on on these papers? Because obviously, you run the the Center for Healthy Aging um, yeah. and and a little bit of 
your responsibility there as well? Well, it's really, you know, it's a one medicine story, actually. And so um, what happened uh, early on in the pandemic is as the director for the Center for Healthy Aging, I was newly hired. Um, I'd only been in the position for several months. I was creating relationships with um, different senior residency um, communities in the area, in the northern Colorado and along the Front Range area. Um, and uh, as a really a means to develop um, registries and participation for human clinical trials. And so, you know, we have the veterinary school that does great uh, animal clinical trials with animal patients. And then we have the Center for Healthy Aging is really set up as a human clinical trials center mm -hmm. for aging therapeutics and other age related diseases um, and interventions. And so that was my goal in developing these relationships. Um, then COVID hit. And uh, as a veterinarian, I, you know, I am and many others were sort of puzzled by the fact that the testing that was available was only available for people that were hospitalized. You recall that yep. the CDC had put out the only FDA approved test that you could use and there was limited numbers and it was flawed and what was available could only be used for very sick patients. And, and I am not a herd medicine person. I'm not like a agricultural medicine person, but even just based on my own training as a veterinarian, I started thinking like, this is a really odd way to approach this public health threat. In a way, like if this were a foreign animal disease outbreak in a herd of, say, food animals, we would not waste our very limited resources testing the sick. We would isolate the sick and we would test the well because we need to know who's the carrier and when is it safe to bring new animals into the herd, for example. And so when I thought about that from the perspective of a public health threat, and here I was like having relationships with these people uh, in these senior residential care communities, assisted living in nursing homes, and they were terrified and they had no resources. There was no PPE, um, there was no testing, and these are the most vulnerable people. And so I was speaking to a very good colleague of mine, his name is Greg Ebel, he's a virologist. Um, and I said, what, what, does this make sense? I mean, why are we not doing surveillance testing on the people that are you know, coming in and working with the most vulnerable population? This doesn't make any sense. And we said, well, this is PCR, you know, this is not rocket science. Let's go ahead and develop our, you know, the primers to detect the virus. We can do that. And under a research, you know, um, umbrella, can we actually test staff that are coming in from the community to work in these, these settings and see if anybody is a carrier? Because once it gets in these facilities, it's going to be like wildfire. And sure enough, um, what we did, we, we were able to do that. And we had five pilot um, facilities, 15% of people were positive, no <laughs> symptoms. And at the time, remember screening was screened yep. for fever, cough and travel history. That was it. Um, and yet here they were. And then there was the argument, well, they're probably not transmitting if they're asymptomatic. Well, we did plaque assays on all of those nasal swabs and we could show that they indeed they were highly infectious to others. And we brought that attention. It was a very odd, um, one of these synergy moments where I had an opportunity to speak to the governor of Colorado mm. because of my relationship with the senior aging community, the senior care community. And I presented this work to him and he really paid attention. And so that led to a huge, about a $20 million grant from the Department of Health to study surveillance in these, in staff and residents within nursing homes that later got the attention of Washington and became statewide and then eventually nationally. And that's what we published on, um, not only just the, the incidents and, um, and the ability that if we were actually able to identify those people early and isolate them, we could mitigate outbreaks and save lives, but also the viral evolution in these 
people who are, you know, generally immune suppressed because of their older age or other comorbidities and how that begins to, you know, uh, change and evolve within these, uh, you know, very vulnerable populations. And that's, and so again, it's a one medicine story because it was my perspective as a veterinarian that really made us do this research that then caused this discovery to be that, yeah, that these are asymptomatic carriers and they're highly infectious and they're coming to work to take care of people that they really care about and they don't, and they, you know, they can't protect them and they can't protect themselves. So one of those strange convergences of different disciplines that came together to make an impact. No, I, 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 I'm, uh, I appreciate you sharing that. And as I said, I wanted to, again, I, I thought that was an important piece of, um, of your overall portfolio and, and, and uh, we really wanted to highlight it. But So thank you for that. Um, Nicole, anything else um, hot for 2022? Um, any conferences you're going to be presenting at, places we can listen to meet you? Um, anything else happening that I missed that, you know, please take the floor and Oh, thanks. Um, well, um, if you're in the veterinary world, I'll be in Nice, France in September at the nice. um, European Society of Veterinary Orthopedics and Traumatology. Um, I'll also be attending the Gordon Conference on the Biology of Aging um, mm-hmm. in Europe this year. Um, so those are the two biggies. And then I'm usually at the Orthopedic Research Society meetings, um, but there's always an opportunity to reach out through CSU's website um, and I would love to hear from people that are interested in collaborating, that are interested in, you know, adding synergy to our paired human dog biobank, our users of something like that, our EV-based therapeutics um, work, all of those things. We are, if there's one thing that defines, um, I think, our, you know, ethos, it's collaboration and um, synergy. And so I hope that your listeners will reach out because we'd love to hear from you. For sure. Absolutely. And we'll definitely help spread that message. Synergy in action. I, yes. <laughs> I, I, I love it. Um, really, really great stuff, Nicole. I, I, um, I got to keep following you, uh, rooting you on in all these projects. It's, it's just a, as you were saying, a fascinating combinatorial uh, set of programs you have. Um, for everybody that is going to be uh, listening to this particular episode of our show on the various podcast networks, or watching on our YouTube channel. Again, you've been listening to Dr. Nicole Earhart, Director, Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging, Colorado State University. Um, Nicole, I wanna thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us for a little while about all these topics. Obviously, thank you for everything you're doing, both for humans and companion animals. And as we like to say on our show, um, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow for humans and companion animals via what you're doing. Really very exciting set of projects. Well, thank you for giving me the voice. I really appreciate it. Right, great seeing you.